Well, welcome into the New Orleans Saints podcast. We're brought to you by SeatGeek. And on this Monday, April the 6th, we are uh, really celebrating a Saints game day. We're in odd times right now uh, as we prepare for a Monday night football rebroadcast on ESPN. And we are joined uh, by a friend of the program, a personal friend, a columnist, uh, extraordinaire uh, author. What else is it? Uh, Jeff Duncan from now the Athletic. One of my old colleagues from the Times 15, but now at the Athletic, doing his thing. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us here on the program on this Monday. A little bit odd game day, but uh, hopefully you're holding up well and your family's holding up well. Yeah, JD, it's good to be on. Good to hear your voice. Uh, I think we're all like just striving for communication these days. You know, we're both in the communication business and uh it just feels this isolation uh people just have a yearning right now i think to communicate so it's uh good to hook up we should call this the jd to jd uh podcast just for this one time yeah we can we can do that you know what here's the thing i'm not accustomed to being at home this much uh over the course of a year maybe a year and a half i mean how about you because being at home is that's, I think that's driving me as, as stir crazy as much as crazy as much as anything because I'm just not accustomed to being at home. Well, see, we're completely different on on that in that regard because at the athletic, of course, we we basically work out of our homes, a home office here that I've been working out of, and and I've been working on this book project on the Saints on Drew Brees and Sean Payton for the last two months. The the manuscript was due in February. So basically, I was in isolation myself for about six weeks straight <laughs> to the end of the football season to mid-February when I got that manuscript turned in. That's all I was doing was isolated in my home office, working away, cranking out the final chapters of that manuscript. So it doesn't feel a lot different to me, to be honest with you. Oh, man, it's way different for me. But I hear something different because you can offer a different perspective. Um, the 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 return game for the Saints against the Falcons on that Monday night because you were the, one of the first guys who were in the Superdome after um, we, you know, the, the announcement was made that it was going to be reopened. There was going to be a Monday night football game. It was going to be Saints Falcons. You were one of the first people who took a walk through the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. Tell us what that was like back then. Yeah, I can still remember it pretty vividly. Um, getting in touch with. Doug Thornton, you, you remember back then, J.D., it was very difficult to just get phone calls in and communicate with people. But for some reason, I had a good line of communication with Doug Thornton and was in constant contact with him uh, in the initial days after the storm. Of course, Doug and his staff, some of his staff, executive staff, was riding out the storm in the dome throughout the uh, crisis, uh, you know, the, the post-storm um you know, uh, occupation of the dome with all the storm victims that were there. And uh, then it was after they got everyone evacuated from the dome, I think it was about the following Thursday or so. It took forever, of course. Uh, we stayed in contact and the dome was kind of closed off for about a week or so. My, my memory might be fuzzy there. But at one point, uh, he said they were going to have a remediation unit come in and do an assessment of the damage and wanted to know if uh, I wanted to accompany the team along with a photographer. And I think it was Mike DeMacher at the time went with me, uh, the staff photographer at the time speaking. And we got in there. Uh, I remember it was a Sunday afternoon and Tim Coulon from the LSED committee was there. We were putting on these hazmat outfits. We had no idea what we were doing, J.D., you know, putting in these big white 
uh, outfits that you see people wear, and they were it was very hot. They, you know, there's of course no you know no air conditioning back then in the dome, so the building itself was stifling warm. It was very wet because all the humidity, all the rain that had come in through the opening of the dome roof had settled onto the field and just been kind of incubating in there for days. I remember it was very kind of a sweet smell that you could smell at the time. Um, and I'm sure that was probably mildew, you know, looking back on it. But the thing yeah. that stood out to me was just how much refuse was in there, you know, how much trash. It, it reminded me of, say, an open fairgrounds like a jazz fest after a concert. There was just trash and cans and and, and bottles and, and just stuff everywhere, all over every square inch of the building and wherever we went, you know, concourses, you know how big that building is, right? You've been through it a million times. Yeah. You, know, you go up second, third floors, wherever you went, whatever suite you went in, whatever office had been occupied because people were trying to carve out their own space that were in there and try and just basically get away, get their own uh, occupancy area uh, because there was, it was clear just how many people were in there and there was obviously also a lot of signs of suffering. I remember uh, distinctly going to the SMG offices. They had been kind of broken into, and people were just trying to find a, an open space to get away. And there were a bunch of notes on the reception desk uh, with people, you could tell, pleading for first responders that might come across that, that desk. Uh, you know, please find, uh, go find uh, this person at this address. They're by themselves. I mean, it was just startling some of the um, things we saw in there and I remember thinking and talking to Doug afterwards how are we ever going to get this place cleaned up in time to even start to figure out just how much damage has been done to the dome because the trash was just uh, it was an incredible amount wow wow I tell you what that now that adds to I don't want to call it a miracle but to be able to stage a football game uh, after what you just described seems pretty Pretty daunting. Um, you know, when you when you reflect on that game, and, and I guess what it meant to reopen the Superdome and to play a football game, and I know on a on a grand scheme, I think a lot of people say, you know, why in the world are they playing playing football? But it seemed like New Orleans needed to do something to shine the light to say that New Orleans was was up and running and, and back in business or alive and well, or or if not well, at least alive. I mean, your recollections, I guess, of the game. Yeah, that's a great point. I think Governor Blanco back then took some heat, uh, some criticism for earmarking um, that dome recovery. And I think looking back on it now, with the benefit of hindsight, it was a brilliant move and a very courageous move at the time. Um, the the game itself, uh, to me, wasn't as important as the event. You, you know, it was a huge event. But circling back to your original point before I get into that, um, the game – the, the NFL in general, J.D., is a Fortune 500 company. Having the Saints in New Orleans is basically the, the equivalent of a Fortune 500 company. You know and I know uh, New Orleans is not blessed. The state of Louisiana is not blessed with large corporations. It's it's one of the, one of the I think, competitive disadvantages the Saints have in some degree with their peers in the NFL. Uh, there's not a lot of corporate major corporations here. The NFL in a lot of ways is that for Louisiana, for New Orleans. It, it puts us on a major league competitive scale with all of our other peer cities across the country. So getting 
the NFL back here was important symbolically, uh, as was rebuilding the Superdome, which is a, a part of the skyline in New Orleans, and everyone could see this damaged icon, this iconic building with a hole in its roof. So, you know, Kathleen Blanco, Governor uh, Mayor Nagan, all the, the officials with the Saints, Tom Benson, the NFL, Paul Tagliabue's commissioner at the time, they all understood that. They had a vision. We have to rebuild the dome because people are going to be driving by this building every day, and it's going to say something to them if we just let it sit here uh, broken and not fix it. And I think that vision was so important to the citizens of New Orleans to see work being done on the building and to inspire people who were fighting their own fights at the time, personally, uh, spiritually, emotionally, uh, with FEMA, with their insurance companies trying to rebuild their own homes. And I think seeing the dome being rebuilt and come back to life in nine months on an incredibly, uh, you know, expeditious uh, pace, I think inspired people, hey, if we can build, rebuild that big, massive structure, uh, if the NFL is behind it, they're saying they're coming back to New Orleans, then this city's not going to die. And it, it inspired hope, I think, for everyone in their personal lives to, to come back and rebuild their own homes. Now, we're not dealing with, obviously, the structural uh, destruction now with, you know, dealing with the pandemic, COVID-19. Uh, but it, it seems, you know, again, we're kind of displaced, kind of, you know, not necessarily displaced because, you know, our homes are wrecked, but our lives are, are so interrupted that we, I guess, we feel like it's wrecked. Uh, how do you see New Orleans handling this pandemic, I guess, sports-wise? Well, it, that's good timing because I'm actually writing a story about that this week for The Athletic, and it, it's been very similar. You know, New Orleanians, uh, you know, you're born and raised here. You know this better than anyone. Uh, very persistent people, very, almost to the point of stubbornness. Um, we know the flaws and the inherent dangers of living in this little sliver of land in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, basically. Whenever I fly in and out of New Orleans and look down, I always think, J.D., who thought this was a good idea to put a city here in the middle of this ocean, basically, of marsh? Uh, so, you know, it's obviously very perilous to live down here. And everyone that kind of is here, and I think post-Katrina even more so, if you came back and you rebuilt here, uh, you're invested now financially, emotionally, uh, you know, everything involved. I mean, the fence sitters back then left and, and they started new lives elsewhere. And I, I don't judge anybody that did that because it was a very difficult road to come back here and it was much easier to kind of get a fresh start somewhere else. But everyone now that's here has kind of been invested now for a decade and a half. And so we've been through a lot of these crises. And I think the response in the New Orleans sports scene from some of the athletes on the Saints roster, from Gail Benson uh, donating money, from Drew Brees and Brittany Brees donating. It just speaks to the spirit of New Orleans and the resilience of the people here that we're going to come together and unite and overcome this and help each other out. And I can remember post-Katrina, even at the Times Picayune, I'm sure you were a part of this as well. I mean, the families coming together and helping uh, you know, tear down people's homes and rebuild people's homes. We would do that every weekend in our little uh, our little business world at, at the Times Picayune. That's what we did to help each other out. We're seeing it on a greater scale here in New Orleans with people trying to help out the healthcare profession, the healthcare workers, and the service industry people that are such an important part of the economy of New Orleans. So it doesn't surprise me that we've 
responded the way we have. And uh, but it also is a great sense of pride to know we live in a community that's uh, like that, that has that kind of uh, spirit of giving and helping out. Yeah, I always say uh, it's a really, really provincial place. Uh, but when you live here, you you kind of get it. You understand it. And uh, just so folks know out there, uh, Junk was one of the people who was here during Hurricane Katrina. Um, stayed, worked, uh, was you know floating around in boats, checking stuff out. Was that you and Alex Brandon hanging out then back then? Yeah, me and Alex. And then at one point, uh, uh, we switched off, and I ended up with um, Grunfeld. You know, you just kind of, you just kind of stumbled into stories every day, you know, back then. I mean, you, what we would do every day, we were staying at a, a colleague's house, Stephanie Grace, columnist for the Advocate and the Times Picayune right now, her her place on Laurel Street in uptown New Orleans. We, there was about 10 or 12 of us there sleeping on the floors. And then we'd just get up every day and you'd go down to Harrah's, which was kind of the nerve center uh, for all the first response units. Uh, all the police was there. The search and rescue missions would start there. And you just get up and go down there and try and find a story. Sometimes you would hook up with a search and rescue uh, boat mission. Uh, the fish and wildlife departments from all over the country were, were in because they had boats. Uh, I just remember JD seeing on Poydras Street one at one point. I was driving down to Harris and got caught behind a caravan of all these police, fire, uh, and and fish and wildlife, every kind of official unit you can think of from all over the country. I remember writing them down in my notebook. There were there were there were police and fire and rescue and EMS units from almost every state in that caravan going down to Harris. It just really lets you see what kind of impact this had had, uh, you know, all over. It was a global story, and people had just come down to help in any way they could and uh, help the response. And that was in uh, the first few days after the storm. I remember, you know, maybe like two weeks after the storm, there was already all these people that had come in, driven in from all over the country to try and do what they could to help. Well, and then we know how much that that football game really helped energize the community then. Uh, is that same football game going to be able to help energize the community tonight? Yeah, I think so. I think it's perfectly timed. I think, you know, the spirit of it will be uplifting for people as an escape. Uh, I remember distinctly back in 2006 uh, talking to fans. Uh, I, I had the assignment that night for the Times-Picayune really just to cover the event. The game was going to be left to the beat writers and other people on our staff, uh, but I was writing on the event itself, and if you remember – it was like a Super Bowl. It was a Super Bowl for locals. And uh, you have to credit the NFL for doing that. I know the NFL gets kicked around here a lot in New Orleans, but what they did to give that game the platform, uh, the, the, you know, the, the biggest platform they have is Monday Night Football. It reaches the largest audience. And I didn't realize this until I was going back through and reading through some of my archive clips, J.D., that was the first Monday night football game in the Dome since I think it was like 2001 or something. It had been like five years in between Monday yeah. night football broadcasts. That seems incredible now, right, because it's an annual yeah. thing for, for the Saints. But it had been five years since Monday night football had broadcast. And, um, you know, you have U2 and Green Day. They'd never performed together. Uh, you had the, the, the guy that was the producer for the Grammy Awards produced the opening musical act. 
uh, this was a Super Bowl level musical uh, show. Uh, you know, having that yeah. level, those those are people that perform at the Super Bowl here for a regular season game. The NFL, of course, footing the bill for all that. Those artists coming in, you had Irma Thomas and Alan Toussaint performing with Kermit Ruffin's uh, The National Anthem. I mean, it was an extraordinary event. You had presidents on the field and celebrities. Uh, it transcended a regular season football game. It was not hard to learn very quickly that this was much bigger than just a football game in the third week of the 2006 season. This was a symbol to the all of America and also, I think, a message to all of America that New Orleans was going to come back. And I have to give a lot of credit to all the organizers that, that got involved with that, including the NFL for having the vision to do that. Because the other thing I think people forget is that year, that was the first really look that the fans had had of the team. You had Reggie Bush, the superstar that was in town, uh, Drew Brees, who had, you're right. I mean, Drew Brees at that time, no one knew he was going to end up being this Drew Brees. Uh, but the team had played, had done its training camp, of course, in Jackson, Mississippi. They played their preseason games in Shreveport and Jackson all on the road because they had to rebuild the dome during that time. So no one had seen the Saints at all until that game. Uh, so all those things, I think, fed into the anticipation uh, for that night and then for it to happen and, and, and transpire the initial events the way it did, I think, all added up to the impact of that big moment with Steve Gleason. Yeah, I remember that. I, I remember, and I tell people now, that's still the biggest event I've ever covered, bigger than any Super Bowl, any NBA, anything. That's still the biggest event I've ever covered. Now, Dunk, you you mentioned your book project. Before I let you talk about that book project, got to tell people, you know, I've read his previous books, and especially like um, Bags to Riches, folks, if you don't have it, uh, find a way to get it because I love that book. But what's your current project? Well, I'm really excited about it. Um, it it's basic. The title of the book is Peyton and Breeze, the men behind the greatest offense in NFL history. So it's really a, I think Saints fans are going to eat this book up. Uh, you know, it's been a decade now, JD, since Sean and Drew came out with their own books after the Super Bowl. Um, it's hard to believe it's been a decade since the Super Bowl, but it has been, and a lot has transpired over that time. And I wanted to tell the story of their relationship, uh, these two men that came to New Orleans and kind of transformed the franchise and have become uh, great leaders in the community and I think lifted our city in a number of ways. But also I wanted to, to make the argument in the book that this is the greatest offense in, in the history of the NFL. Uh, they've been doing it now for a decade and a half how they've evolved the offense to stay ahead of opposing defenses, uh, really get into the how the sausage is made during the week in the offensive game plan. That was fascinating to me. And I have to uh, you know, say thanks to the coaching staff with the New Orleans Saints, uh, Pete Carmichael, Joe Lombardi, Curtis Johnson, Dan Campbell, along with Sean Payton for sitting down with me and basically explaining what goes on from Monday to Sunday and uh, the step-by-step -step process, is, and, and you know this very well, it's an enormous investment of time and mental energy to put together a game plan for the New Orleans Saints, but I really believe that is why they're so successful. That is why they're great. And the argument I make is this offense has been doing it longer than anybody else. They basically have every offensive passing record in the history of the NFL, all the major ones. Uh, Drew and Sean have collaborated on that, how they've kept it fresh. Uh, you know, you knew Mike McCarthy. I knew Mike McCarthy when he was with the Saints. 
it went stale on him in Green Bay with Aaron Rodgers, and he had to go get another start somewhere else. It went stale on Andy Reid in Philadelphia, and he had to go to Kansas City and just won a Super Bowl. That happens in the NFL. It hasn't happened here. Why has it not happened? And I think people should not take for granted what has gone on here with Sean Payton and Drew Brees because it's, I don't think we'll ever see it again where you have a head coach with an offensive background that played the position of quarterback and a quarterback of this level, this elite level, one of the greats of all time, collaborating. Uh, and every Sunday you get to watch these two guys go to work. Uh, it's been a remarkable run, and I hope they can end it on a high note because these last three years have been unfortunate uh, because I really believe these last three years they're good enough to have won another Super Bowl, and we all know what the events that have led to some of those heartbreaking losses. But I think there's a story there that's going to play out here this season maybe. Well, I think it's going to play out well. I'm definitely looking forward to getting the book. Uh, Dunk, how can people get to you on Twitter? At Jeff Duncan underscore, and if you want to pre-order that book, I'll put in a shameless plug, J.D. You can find it on Amazon right now. It's gonna it's scheduled for release in October, uh, but you can pre-order it right now. Um, it's from Triumph Books out of Chicago, and hopefully, you know, we have a great story to to end it on um, with those two guys this season. I'm not saying it's the end for Drew because I I think you can play as long as he wants to play. I think he would agree with me. Uh, and he will be a part of the Saints for as long as they want to have him. But um, uh, I think it's going to be a storybook ending because I really believe that eventually their luck's going to turn around and they're going to you know, put together another Super Bowl run. Yeah, well, that is not a shameless plug, especially if it's quality work. Uh, folks, I worked with Dunk for a long time at the Science Picune. Uh, excellent writer, excellent columnist. Uh, I know Saints fans and he uh, have a love-hate relationship from time to time. But but the dude, you can call knows, it that. And I, and I tell you what, Saints fans who don't like him, you know, I, I'll give you a story one day about the first time Dunk and I worked in an event together from the Science Pick You, and uh, and I saw the, the side of Jeff Duncan that y'all might not want to see. So <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna let him out of here on that. Dunk, thanks for joining us here on Monday edition of the New Orleans Saints podcast and that's going to be a wrap for us today we'll be back with you on Wednesday for more Saints information <laughs>